You're listening to the Telltale Podcast. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, on Patreon, on Teespring, and on Etsy. All links can be found on my website, telltaleatheist.com, or in the podcast's description. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you guys for coming. First, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump assassinating an Iranian general who happens to be one of the top-ranking people in the country. We're going to talk a little bit about the difference between Sunni and Shiite, what those terms mean, how they came about, and how they're different. Then we're going to get into the United Methodist Church split, which is happening right now as a result of some interesting changes that took place. So we'll take a look at that. But before we get into all of that, why don't we take a listen to some phone calls and see what they have to say. Let's listen to the first one here. Hi, Owen. Um, My name is Kristen. Uh, I was wondering, um, I don't know if you're following the whole Onision drama (laughs) on YouTube. Um... But I feel like I hear the word cult thrown out a lot at him. Like, people are saying that he's created a cult. But I don't, I mean, I listen, I've been watching your videos a lot. Clearly, it's a different type of cult than what you usually talk about. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. And, like, what the difference is between, like, a religious cult, like the ones you usually talk about, and, like, whatever cult, if there is a cult around, like, what Onision is doing to women. And then on top of that, like, it also kind of makes me think of the R. Kelly situation where people are saying that he has, like, a cult. And... I was wondering, like, if you could apply the bite model to that kind of cult as well, or if that's more so directed at religious cults. Um, I know in some ways it probably is, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, because I just hear the word thrown out a lot in regards to those types of things, and I was wondering what you think about that. All right. Well, thanks for doing what you do. Take care. Okay, thank you for the call. I appreciate that. About Onision, um, that is an interesting situation, and I have been keeping up with it. I have been in communication with some of the people leading the charge on the Onision situation. I don't really want to say a whole lot more about it at the moment because I don't know if anything's going to come of it, but it's possible that I may be working with people to talk about the Onision situation. Now, you mentioned that Onision acts a lot like a cult member, and Chris Hansen has been talking a lot about his status as a cult leader, quote-unquote, right? So is he a cult member? Can the bite model apply to Onision? Here's the bottom line with it. As my friend Chris Shelton says, at its most basic... A cult is an abusive relationship between the leadership and the member. So an abusive relationship can have the bite model applied to it, and it does work. It does fit. It makes sense. 
In fact, since we're talking about it, uh, why don't we just take a quick look at the byte model? Let's look at it and see like how it applies. Just think about this in the context of an abusive relationship rather than a cult. Does the uh, abuser promote dependence and obedience? For example, uh, will they try to prevent the person from working outside the home so that they rely completely on that on them so that they have no way of escaping the situation uh, do they dictate where and with whom you live do they try to make you shun your friends and family deliberately withhold and distort information do they instill black and white us versus them good versus evil thinking do they uh, use loaded language and cliches to stop complex thought. All of this stuff applies to an abusive relationship because, as I said, at its most basic, that's what a cult is. So the bite model does apply to Onision very, very heavily. But aside from that fact, aside from the fact that he has the markings of a cult leader and that the, the bite model definitely does apply to him, he also actually did try to start a cult. I forget the name of the cult now. Uh, starts with an S, I think. But anyways, it was an actual full-blown religion that he was kind of trying, tr kind of playing with, basically. And there were tenets and rules and everything. So yeah, I would say that the bite model does very clearly apply to Onision, without a doubt. And his behavior is absolutely horrific to me. In fact, one of the things that bothers me more than anything else on this planet is when somebody abuses their position or authority. There is a power dynamic between everybody. When I worked at my old company, there was a there was a power dynamic between me and my boss. We can be friendly with each other, but if we start going out and getting drinks together every night or something like that, there's going to be some level of weirdness there because they have authority over my paycheck. They have authority over the jobs that I take. What are my fellow employees going to think if I'm best buds with my boss and they're not and suddenly I get a pay raise and they get jealous of that? There's a power difference between people. And as a YouTuber, there is a, a difference, like a power differential between Onision and Onision's fans. And the fact that he's using that difference in authority to prey on people is absolutely horrific to me. Like people, when they first talk to him, when they meet him for the first time, they have stars in their eyes. They don't realize that he's just another dude, just like anybody else. There's nothing special about the guy. There's nothing special about any YouTuber. We're all just people. But the fans in Onision's fan base don't realize that because he's got millions of subscribers. He's got all of this money and all of the, you know, he's got, well, he had Patreon and all of this influence, this giant Twitter account, he seems important. So when you talk to somebody like that, it feels special. And you'll just do anything for, for them, for their approval. They've got stars in their eyes when they talk to Onision.
and he can use that to his advantage and does and it's absolutely the most disgusting thing abusing your power is the most disgusting thing that you can do in my eyes so with that being said yes the bite model does apply to onision very very clearly absolutely no question um, i appreciate the phone call and the question um I'm hoping that I'm going to have an opportunity to talk more on the subject, but we'll see. Time will tell. Hey, it's Bowley. This isn't a super serious question. So um, if you only have to choose one of these, there are no other options. Would you rather become a cult leader or join Jehovah's Witness again? Thanks. Bye. Would I rather become a cult leader or would I rather become a Jehovah's Witness again? That's a good question. Honestly, I've thought about becoming a Jehovah's Witness again just for the sake of being able to talk to my family and everything. If I could just get reinstated as a Jehovah's Witness, like erase my disfellowshipping or whatever, and kind of take part in all of this again. I could have a relationship with my mom. I could have my daughter have a relationship with her. It would be a lot better, a lot easier on me. But I can't. And here's why. I thought about going back. I thought about going back to the meetings and getting reinstated. But if I did, I would not be able to stop my mom from trying to convert Kylie. If she found out that I didn't believe it or whatever... I think I could fake my way through it. But if she found out I didn't believe it, she would tell the elders and they would re-disfellowship me. I can't live with her trying to convert Kylie. That's the, that's the real issue with it. So take that for what you will. As far as starting my own cult goes, I could do that, but... I think I would rather start my own cult than become a Jehovah's Witness again because I could control how that cult grows and what types of values I have for the people. So I would encourage things like free thought and free flow of information and free will. I would encourage people in constructive ways versus destructive ways like a lot of cults do. So between those two options, becoming a Jehovah's Witness again and being a cult leader, I'd be a cult leader so that I could help people in constructive ways rather than destructive ways like most cults. Hey, it's Seabird from this. What is the reason behind a lot of religions having such a hatred for certain types of music? Thank you. That's an interesting question, and I wish I knew the answer fully. But if you think about it, back in the day, back in the, like the 1950s, Christians hated dancing too. Like they had a huge, they always have a huge problem with these new trends in society. Christianity, in large part, not entirely, but largely, is very traditionalist. Like they, they like the old ways, they don't want anything to change. They think anything new is a bad thing. And back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, when dancing was a big thing, you know, Elvis Presley came out on stage and was just dancing like a harlot, like it was terrible, and it was infecting young people the way he was dancing. I mean, you, you would walk in the room and you'd see your daughter dancing like Elvis. It was terrible, you know? That's the kind of mindset they have. They're afraid of anything new. That's why 
I think Christianity largely hates certain types of music. They hate anything new. That's my guess. They are, they're always trying to remix old stuff, trying to remix old songs. And then you have like this weird little branch of Christianity that's trying to embrace the new stuff. Like you've got Christian heavy metal, for example. Christianity's always been traditional. Now you have this group out here that's super into like Christian rock and Christian, Christian heavy metal. It's really, really bizarre to see. So there's one more thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to our first story. Let me give you guys my story as a YouTuber. I'll tell you my story as a YouTuber. When I was coming up in YouTube, I was really small. Um, in fact, before I even started my channel, I was watching a lot of Armored Skeptic, a lot of Logic. Oh, I watched some Sargon of Akkad and, and others. Other YouTubers who were kind of in the same circles at that time even though Sargon wasn't really an atheist YouTuber. I also watched Cult of Dusty, interestingly enough. And, and honestly, Cult of Dusty did a lot for me back then. Like, I, I bought his shirts, and I wore them to college, and my teachers hated me for it. But he did a lot for me. Now, Cult of Dusty has gone in a different direction at this point that I can't follow. I'm not even going to try, but I you know, I benefited from what he did back then. So I've got to put that on record. Eventually, all of the YouTubers that I watched either went in a different direction or disappeared completely. Like they just stopped talking about atheism and started talking about anti-SJW shit. And honestly, I followed him there at first. Like I was right there with him. I was like, yeah, you know, the SJWs, they're crazy and all, all that other shit. I followed him there. Over time... I came to realize that it was all complete bullshit and nobody was talking about atheism and that's what I needed at that point in my life. That's what I was on YouTube in that community to see. I wasn't there to see Sargon shitting on SJWs. So I started my own YouTube channel. I, I decided to be the one to talk about it since nobody else was. And I think I got to about 40 subscribers before Logic picked me up and, you know, brought me into a group chat on Skype to talk and hang out with a bunch of other people there, just a bunch of smaller YouTubers, a bunch of others. Professor Stick was there. And uh, let's see, Logic, of course, and Logic's wife, Iseth Original, was there, and Martimer81 was there, Atticus Blake, a bunch of us were there. And I got my first shout-out from Logic. I was at 40 subscribers. It was about 6 o'clock at night. I went to the store to pick something up. I was gone an hour, and when I got home, I had 120 subscribers, and it was just mind-blowing. Like, I hadn't turned emails off yet for subscriptions. Like, every time somebody new subscribed was getting an email, I had, like, 60, 70, 80 emails in my inbox, and I was just blown away because he shouted me out on Twitter. It wasn't even in a video. But somebody in that group, there, there were some YouTubers who made it, some who didn't really move forward with it at all. And then there were just some people who were fans, who were just fans and they're hanging out talking to us. When I was at 40 subscribers, I was a lot less careful about my personal information. Because like, like I was going to make anything out of 
YouTube. Like it was going to go anywhere. Why would I care? So I, I was just like passing around my information, didn't really care, didn't really matter to me. One of the people in that group told me that his house burned down. He sent me an article to the news story showing me that his house burned down. And I felt so bad for the dude that I bought him a laptop, brand new, from Dell, and shipped it to him, which meant he had my information, like my address and everything. And I was good friends with him for a while. I came to find that he was very, very different from me politically. Like, we did not line up at all politically. I'm, I've always been pretty left-wing. He's very, very right-wing. It didn't matter too much to me. I always believe in talking to people, talking through things anyways, regardless of their political beliefs. Because as Mr. Atheist has said, he would still be a right-wing nutcase or an anti-SJW if he hadn't had friends to talk to him through all of that. If he hadn't had left-wing friends or trans friends or gay friends to talk to him and be friends with him through that, he would still be there. So I have always believed in talking to everybody and being friends with everybody, no matter how politically extreme they are, because that's how you get them out. I've always believed in talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, talking to Mormons, being friends with them, because that is how you help them get out. So I, I talked to this dude. I was good friends with him. I played StarCraft II with him all the time, like every night for months. We played until we burned that game out. Like we weren't even interested in it at a certain point. And, and then his house burned down. And I bought him that laptop because I know that you need a laptop to get a, a job, to search for a new house. You need a laptop for a whole lot, including playing StarCraft with your friends. So I bought him that laptop, and we played StarCraft for a while after that still. And eventually, things just kind of dropped off. Like, we kind of just stopped talking as much. You know, I didn't use Skype. I used Skype for other things on different accounts for business and stuff. And that's basically all he used. So every now and then I'd get on Skype and I'd message him and I'd be like, hey, why don't you get on Discord? Because I'm on Discord all the time. I sent him a link, an invite link to, like, my Discord and... And everything and he was like oh I don't have a microphone I was like it doesn't matter you don't need a mic for discord just come on there and we'll hang out and talk and whatever and he never did I don't think well fairly recently within the past like six months or so he took that personal information that he had from like me sending him that laptop and provided that information to some extremist groups he gave extremist groups the tools that they need to find my address and phone number. He did it on Facebook, and he did it on Twitter and other places. And then I got this phone call earlier, this voicemail. It's 
probably nothing. It's probably some dickhead trying to mess with me, but the fact that there are extremist groups out there who hate me, who want to see me dead, and he provided the information they needed to make it happen is fucking scary. So, I just wanted to put it on record. I actually called the FBI and told them because they're supposed to handle cyber crimes. I told them the situation and they were like, okay, we've documented it, thank you. And that, that's about it. They just moved on with their lives and expect me to move on with mine too, I guess. So anyway, I guess I'll get some cameras. I don't know. Honestly, it's probably nothing, but there are extremist groups out there who want me dead and also have the means to do it. So take that for what you will. Next, we're going to be talking about Trump and his war-provoking attack. Give us about 30 seconds. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Podcast. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, on Patreon, on Teespring, and on Etsy. All links can be found on my website, telltaleatheist.com, or in the podcast's description. Stick around. We've got more coming up. Let's take a look at the next subject I wanted to cover. U.S. says terminated top Iran general to thwart attack on Americans. Now, I'm sure a lot of you guys have probably heard this already. It was pretty big news. That's kind of the thumbnail and the title of the podcast at this point. So I assume you guys knew about that. But let's dive in to this article and see what it has to say. Now, the, the name of the general was Soleimani. I think that's how it's pronounced, Soleimani. Basically, as far as I know, this general was a uh, really, really top-ranking guy. He was like a second or third most powerful person in Iran, and he was really well-respected in Iran by a lot of people. Now, he does have blood on his hands. Don't, don't think this is me justifying the guy's existence or the things that he did or any of that, because he has done some really bad stuff. But I'll tell you what, let's just read the article and see what it says. Soleimani, a 62-year-old general who headed the overseas arm of the Revolutionary Guards, was regarded as the second most powerful figure after Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Let me explain a little bit about what an Ayatollah is. I believe that's what it is. So there are two different sects of Islam that we're dealing with here. There are actually a lot of different sects, obviously. There are a lot of different sects in Christianity, too. But in Islam, we've got the two main ones, which are Shia and Sunni. And we've got a bunch of others like Ismaili and, and all kinds. But these are the two primary ones that we're dealing with, okay? So ISIS was Sunni, and Iran is Shia. The primary difference between Sunni and Shia largely revolves around who assumed power after Muhammad died, pretty much. Is it going to be like his son or, or, or his grandson or whatever else? Or do they look to the holy books or whatever? In this case, Ayatollah is the, the spiritual leader. He's basically like God's mouthpiece on earth, pretty much, in this situation. 
The other group, the Sunnis, believe in a caliphate, which is why ISIS tried to set up a caliphate forever ago through that region, if you guys remember that. So Ayatollah Khomeini is the spiritual leader for Iran because they are Shia Muslims. And that means that they were fighting the, the Sunni forces in Iraq, i.e. Iran has been fighting ISIS. And this general, Soleimani, led campaigns against ISIS and was an integral part of taking out ISIS in that region. He was working in many ways alongside the U.S. to destroy ISIS. Like I said, the guy's got blood on his hands. He's not a good person. But he is not one of the quote-unquote Muslim extremists that, was, that has been attacking the U.S. this entire time, trying to set up a caliphate in the Middle East. Like He was not part of ISIS in any sense. So let's continue reading. The overnight attack authorized by U.S. President Donald Trump was a major escalation in a shadow war in the Middle East between Iran and the United States and American allies, principally Israel and Saudi Arabia. A senior Trump administration official said the general had been planning imminent attacks on U.S. personnel across the Middle East. Democratic critics said the order by the Republican president was reckless and that he had raised the risk of more violence in a dangerous region. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him, Trump told reporters at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. I'm sorry, you took action to stop a war. Okay, I misunderstood because at this moment, Iran is talking about, they've already appointed a new guy to replace the old one. That's what the decapitation strategy gets you, by the way. If you try to cut off the head of this organization, like when we tried to kill the leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, guess what happens? Somebody replaces that person because it's a power vacuum. The next guy in line is going to take authority and continue the actions of the previous dude. And this time, they're going to have the people's support in that attack because you just killed somebody they looked up to. That's what a decapitation strategy leads to. That's what happens when you try to cut off the head of an organization. You lose the support of the people involved, if you had it in the first place, and everything gets worse. So you were trying to stop a war, is what you're trying to tell me. Because you just started a war with that move. That is, that is what you did. You started a war with this. If you think we're safer after you did that, you're a fool. Trump said the U.S. was not seeking regime change in Iran. Oh, that's new because they've been seeking regime change for like decades. I don't know about recently, but they've done regime change in Iran before. Just look into the Shah of Iran. That's a huge big deal that, that the U.S. did, this big crooked thing that the U.S. did. Uh, basically regime change to install a dictator into Iran so that we could get you know, their natural resources, pretty much. A top U.S. general cautions that the plot by Soleimani could still happen. Yeah, obviously. They just replaced him and move on. Could still happen despite his death. U.S. officials said Washington was sending nearly 3,000 more troops to the Middle East, joining roughly 750 sent to Kuwait this week. The attack 
which also killed a top Iraqi militia commander and advisor to Soleimani, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, divided Iraqi opinion. Many condemned the attacks, seeing Soleimani as a hero for his role in defeating the Islamic State militant group. Others voiced approval, saying Soleimani and Mohandas had backed the use of force against unarmed anti-government protesters last year and established militias that demonstrators blame for many of Iraq's social and economic woes. However, many Iraqis criticized Washington for killing the men of, on Iraqi soil and possibly plunging Iraq into another war. Yep. Actually, there was a news report recently saying that Iraq is pretty much evicting the United States from the country. Like, they're, they're trying to get us out of there now. France has come out and said the world is less safe now than it was before because of this stupid move. Like, we've been trying for a long, long time, years and years, to try to get Iran to stop, like, building nukes and enriching uranium to the level that they need to make nukes. And we've just been barely riding the fence this entire time. Like, we've been barely getting them to just—it's like two steps forward, one step back kind of thing with negotiations with Iran. And we finally— get to the point where maybe we can work together and we get the Iran deal in place and we lift some of the sanctions. And now we're at the point where they remove, they get rid of the Iran deal, murder one of the generals. Yes, I said the word murder. Murder one of the generals, the top general. They're just plunging us into a hot war. The funniest part about this whole thing is what Trump said like eight years ago when Obama was in office and trying to run for election and all of that stuff non-stop i swear you should look up these tweets trump talked about how obama was planning on starting a war with iraq because he knows that war is good for re-election and trump tweeted this like a billion times there's even video of trump saying this suddenly what do we find trump starting a war with iran in an election year isn't that funny so that's what we're dealing with right now I wanted to take a look at some of Trump's tweets, though, before we move on to another subject here. Here's a tweet from Trump. The United States just spent $2 trillion on military equipment. We are the biggest and by far the best in the world. If Iran attacks an American base or any American, we will be sending some of that brand new beautiful equipment their way and without hesitation. Out of curiosity, I looked it up to see what it would cost to solve homelessness in the United States. Do you want to take a guess? We just spent $2 trillion on the military. What percentage of that could we take from the military budget and put into solving homelessness? $20 billion out of $2 trillion. 1%. 1% of what we just spent on the military to kill each other could solve homeless, homelessness in America. I am honestly so sick of my tax money going to hurt people. Like, I, this is a policy on my YouTube channel. This is a policy in my everyday life. I try and fail sometimes, but do my best to never tear somebody down. I do my best to never hurt people. I'll go after organizations, but I try not to uh, hurt people. I only ever want to build people up. 
I don't want my tax money going to killing people. I want it to go toward making people better into implementing a Medicare for all type of, si type of system. Why can't we help each other instead of hurt each other? Why do we always have to, why is it that we're always like dealing with climate change and the proliferation of AI and all of this other stuff and all we can think about is killing each other. I don't get it. I don't know what's broken in the human brain that makes people act like apes and want to kill each other. Let's look at the next tweet. Somebody, Dan Crenshaw, I don't actually know who Dan Crenshaw is. They said, for those claiming there's no plan that this was reckless, i.e. The, the murder of the Iranian general, step one of any strategy is to stop letting terrorist regimes attack us without repercussion. They're conflating, I feel. They're conflating all Muslims. I, I feel like here they're, they're kind of saying that ISIS is synonymous with Iran when they're very, very different groups and they actually hate each other and have been fighting each other in the region for a long, long time. I just want to make sure that we keep that in mind as we read on. Step one of any strategy is to stop letting terrorist regimes attack us without repercussion. Why is this basic truth of foreign policy so controversial? And then Trump retweets, they attacked us and we hit back. If they attack again, which I would strongly advise them not to do, we will hit them harder than they have ever been hit before. I haven't seen any evidence of them attacking us. That, that may be, that may be the case. It's possible maybe they did attack us. I want to know what the evidence is before I believe it. Just like with religious belief or anything else, I'm defaulting to disbelief. I do not believe Trump that they attacked us first. Give me the evidence, I'll look at it, and if it's valid and sound, I will accept it. Here's the next tweet. Iran is talking very boldly about targeting certain USA assets as revenge for our ridding the world of their terrorist leader who had just killed an American and badly wounded many others, not to mention all of the people he had killed over his lifetime, including recently hundreds of Iranian protesters. He was already attacking our embassy and preparing for additional hits in other locations. Iran has been nothing but problems for many years. Let this serve as a warning that if Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted 52 Iranian sites representing the 52 American hostages taken by Iran many years ago, some at a very high level and important to Iran and the Iranian culture, and those targets and Iran itself will be hit very fast and very hard. The USA wants no more threats. This is an admission of war crimes, or this is an admission of intent to commit war crimes is probably more accurate. Trump is saying here he, he has targeted 52 Iranian sites, cultural sites, and is prepared to destroy them. He's not talking about military sites. He's talking about cultural sites. That is a war crime. You are not allowed to attack civilians like that during a war. It's against the Geneva Convention. Now, whether Iran agreed to that or not, we agreed to that. We agreed that we will not do that. And if we do, we're committing war crimes straight up. This is Trump admitting to it, that he has intent to destroy civilian centers. And I, I just want to make one more note here. Uh, it says, 
Iran's talking very boldly about targeting certain USA assets as revenge for ridding the world of their terrorist leader who had just killed an American. No evidence of that. I don't have any evidence that that happened. Maybe it did. I don't know. I need evidence for it before I'm going to believe it. And badly wounded many others. Again, no evidence. Not to mention all of the people he had killed over his lifetime, including recently hundreds of Iranian protesters. That one is true. The general gave the order to use lethal force against protesters at one point a while back. And that's why I say he does have blood on his hands. He's not a great person. But this was an act of war. So how many more bodies do we want? How many more are going to satisfy us before we realize that this is a fruitless endeavor, we're burning through money, and we're burning through human bodies? How much is a human life worth? Stop killing. Can we just stop killing? I just don't understand it. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the Methodist Church and a schism that they're dealing with. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Podcast. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, on Patreon, on Teespring, and on Etsy. All links can be found on my website, telltaleatheist.com, or in the podcast's description. Stick around. We've got more coming up. So I was taking a look at this article. The title of it is, It's Good That the United Methodist Church is Breaking Up Over Anti-LGBTQ Hate. Let me give you guys just a little bit of background on this situation, because some of you may be unaware of what happened with it. A while back, um, the United Methodist Church, or the, the Methodist General Conference, voted on this initiative, whether or not they're going to allow gay people to be pastors. This is on the Friendly Atheist blog. This is by Hemant Mehta. So let's give it a look, give it a read, and see what it has to say. The United Methodist Church, the second largest Protestant denomination in the United States, with more than 12 million members, looks like it will soon split up over the question of whether or not to embrace bigotry. It's the right move. Some relationships need to end in divorce. The entire controversy stemmed from the question of whether individual UMC churches should be allowed to ordain LGBTQ members as ministers and perform same-sex marriages. While the majority of UMC churches in the United States supported that a la carte option, many in other parts of the world actively opposed that idea. Last year, 53% of the UMC delegates voted on a plan that basically rejected LGBTQ inclusion for everyone formally affiliated with the church. I remember when this happened, I was really disappointed because if I identified as any religion, which I don't, I am an atheist, I don't believe in any religion at this moment, I think it's all completely ludicrous, but if I did, I would say it would be Methodist because for one thing, in my experience, they haven't been very extreme. This is one of the groups that I tout as being moderate generally, not extreme, as not being a cult. I always cite them when somebody says, name one religion that's not a cult. I say Methodists, Lutherans, and some others. So the fact that they voted on this really, really disappointed me. I'm interested to see this split in the church. Honestly, splits in churches have always fascinated me. Like. Just look back to the Millerite movement in the mid-1800s when they split up. They split and kind of formed like a bunch of different sects, 
And from those sects, Jehovah's Witnesses were born, Seventh-day Adventists were born, just a ton of different groups sprung up from that. So I'm always fascinated to see when a, a group splits up, to see where it goes from there. Okay, let's continue reading this. That meant pro-inclusion churches were going to have to make a decision, accept the new rules and say goodbye to LGBTQ leaders in relationships and those who wanted to perform same-sex unions, along with all those younger people who had never voluntarily joined such a bigoted denomination, or make a break and try to run a church with no support from a larger body. That latter option would have been difficult for many churches that rely on the financial help from the UMC. Very true. Today, however, a new proposal was put forth by UMC leaders. The protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation would effectively create a traditionalist Methodist denomination for the bigots and seed it with $25 million over four years because their family, and I guess you can't let them go without a peace offering. The flip side of that is that pro-inclusion churches can remain within the UMC fold and continue supporting LGBTQ members. That's even more fascinating. The fact that the, the um, I don't like using the word bigots in, in this case because bigotry, uh, racism means discrimination against somebody based on their race or their ethnicity or whatever, right? Sexism means discrimination based on sex. Bigotry means discrimination based on opinions. I don't think that this is over opinions. I think that this is homophobia, not bigotry. So uh, I would say the, the homophobes probably would be more apt. It says, a new proposal was put forth by UMC leaders. The protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation would effectively create a traditionalist Methodist denomination for the homophobes and seed it with $25 million over four years. So that's extremely fascinating to me because that tells me that the homophobes were the problem that, that was too small. It tells me that the reasonable people who wanted to be more inclusive outnumbered the homophobes, even though the vote went that direction anyways. That's extremely interesting to me that it played out the way it did. I don't know. I'm kind of torn on the money. They're seeding them with $25 million over four years. I'm really not a huge fan of that, but at least the split's happening. I can be happy that the split's happening, I guess. The flip side of that is that pro-inclusion churches can remain with the UMC fold and continue supporting LGBTQ members. Friday's, uh, this is a quote, Friday's announcement came as new sanctions were set to go into effect in the church, which would have made punishments for UMC pastors who performed same-sex weddings much more severe. One year's suspension without pay for the first wedding and removal from the clergy for any wedding after that. Instead, leaders from liberal and conservative wings signed an agreement saying they will postpone those sanctions and instead vote to split at the Worldwide Church's May General Conference. That's a bit of good news, I would say, right? I'm so glad that this split is happening. I'm really, really happy about that. In addition to breaking away from the more inclusive UMC, the, the homophobes promise not to fight over UMC assets. In other words, this won't be a messy divorce. Both sides are getting what they want. They're pledging not to fight over custody. It's pretty much the best thing everyone could have hoped for. There's still some work to do, though. Even after the, the homophobes leave, the UMC's official position remains anti-LGBTQ. That's a shame. And members will have to undo that. Some leaders say just getting rid of those rules, however, 
won't fix the innate anti-LGBTQ culture within the church or its reckoning with history. That's true. But small steps, you know? Small steps. We're making progress. We're moving in the right direction, and I'm really glad to hear about that one. There are efforts in the protocol to stop condemnation of LGBTQ people, which of course is good. There are no signs pointing toward a church that affirms us and repents of the significant harm that has been done to the LGBTQIA people for decades because of its complicity in spiritual violence against us, said M. Barclay, who was ordained in 2017 as the United Methodist Church's first transgender deacon. Fascinating. See, what other sect of Christianity would you find a transgender deacon? I can't imagine that happening in a Southern Baptist church. I mean, that, that just goes to show you that Methodists are a, a, have historically been a little bit more progressive or are currently more progressive than a lot of other branches, and that's a good sign. I want to see other denominations move that direction. Pretty much lost hope for Jehovah's Witnesses. Pretty much lost hope for Mormonism. Not happening. But at least... It's working in one of them. At least it's working in one sect, in one split of one sect, of one denomination, of one religion. It's working. So, baby steps. The Gatheist says, What is your opinion on giving felons who are now free the right to vote? I personally think they should. They did their time. I agree, 100%. Honestly, I feel like all felons should be allowed to vote, whether they're free or not. If I mean, this is a country that they live in, and I think that everybody should be allowed to vote. And actually, that's the case in a lot of places. I'm in West Virginia. If you're in jail, they send around absentee ballots and stuff. Like, you still vote if you're in prison, and that's okay with me. If you live in the country, no matter what, you should be allowed to vote in my eyes. That's just me. Next Super Chats from Nervardia. What do you know about the bushfires in Australia? What, what are your thoughts on the political will on climate change? Hadn't heard about the, or I think I heard about the bushfires. I don't know enough about them to talk about them. I did hear that there was a huge issue happening right now, and I, I hope that everybody there is safe, and I know that you live in Australia, and I know others that live in Australia, like not Jaw Witness. I hope you guys come out of it okay. Like, I hope there's no danger to your safety or anything. As far as the political will on climate change, I was talking to Mr. Atheist about this the other day, actually. He and I were on a phone call talking about climate change and how we, you know, that whole thing about how we have 12 years before, you know, it's kind of too late like the runaway greenhouse effect is going to kick in and the earth is just going to get worse and worse and we won't be able to change it. And he made a really interesting point to me. His point was, if we think the earth is going to come together, if we think we're getting South Africa and France and China and Russia and Canada and everybody to come together and, uh, and change their policies to be less damaging to the environment, we're dreaming. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that way. What we have to hope for is that we can raise enough awareness about climate change to get really, really good scientists and really rich funders to invest in technology that will solve the problem. That's pretty much our only hope right now. There are carbon capture devices that we've been working on that we're making a lot of progress on, and I honestly think that that's probably our only hope. I hadn't really considered that until Jimmy had, had mentioned that to me, but it's a 100% solid point. I think we're going to have to rely on technology to dig us out of this hole, so that's my take on it. Good luck with the brush fires, for real. It's scary stuff. 
I'll tell you what, that's where I'm going to end it for now. I appreciate you guys coming on, giving this a listen, and I will talk to you next week. If you like what I do and you want to make sure I can continue to do it, you can support me in a few ways. First, you can support me on Patreon. That's probably the best way. But if you want to get something back for your support, you can check out my Teespring. I'm trying to make a shirt design for every cult I've covered. I haven't gotten every one, but I'm working on it. So check it out and see if your cult is up there. Second, you can support me by checking out my game shop. I sell controller, cartridge, and game box stands for every system from the original Nintendo and Sega Game Gear to the Xbox One and Nintendo Switch. So give that a look too. And finally, if you want to support me in some way other than monetarily, you can check out my other YouTube channels. I have a retro game channel where I answer questions like, why does Shy Guy have a mask? And why are CRT TVs the best way to play retro games? I also have the podcast where I talk about stuff I don't feel I can say on a monetized channel. And finally, I have my main channel, where I talk about cults. I wish I didn't have to worry about dancing around subjects carefully in the first place, but I chose to do this as a full-time job, so unfortunately, I rely on YouTube's AdSense and on the support of patrons to continue doing the work I do. Anyways, check me out in all those places if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, guys.